The Lord Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This, brothers and sisters, is the word of God. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we continue on in our study of the Gospel of John. We've been kind of We've been out of it for a little bit. I think the last sermon that I preached in the series in the Gospel of John was uh, in the beginning of July. Uh, But if you remember from those previous times that we looked at this, we came to a passage where Jesus heals a man uh, who was a paralytic in uh, Jerusalem uh, at a pool that's called Bethesda. You can see this earlier in chapter 5. And after he heals this guy, we don't know this this guy's name, but after Jesus heals this guy, we're told that Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, which is a no-no to religious Jews, and it provides an occasion for the religious Jews, the religious elite, to start persecuting Jesus. And then in his defense, you can see in John 5, verse 17, uh, in order to defend himself, Jesus says, well, I know that I'm healing this guy, and I know that it's the Sabbath, but my father is working until now, and I am working. And then the religious elite got really heated up. It uh, really grinded their gears a lot, because in verse 18, uh, they charge him with blasphemy. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Uh, They understood, which is, by the way, a miracle in and of itself, they understood what Jesus is talking about. Uh, but they understood his claims to deity, full equality with his father. And so what he does in verses 19 through the end of the chapter, verses 19 through uh, verse 47, uh, instead of kind of backpedaling on his claims, uh, what he does is that he expands his, his, his claims in a, uh, a multi-tiered sort of, uh, sort of way. Uh, he expands upon his claims with equality with the father. He says things uh, like, listen, the son only does the things that he sees his father doing. He says uh, things like the son judges like the father. In fact, he says things like the son is the very one by whom the father's judgment is going to come. And now we come to a further expansion of his claims with equality with the father, which, by the way, if you think about it, is a greater claim than his claim to deity, okay? His claims to equality with the Father, if you really think about it, is a greater claim than his claim to deity because when he claims equality with the Father, not only is he claiming deity, uh, he's also claiming a lot more than this. He's claiming an eternal union uh, between the Son and the Father. He's, he's claiming something 
that the rabbis in his day would, of course, uh, deem uh, just inaccessible, just absolute uh, um, uh, tantamount to heresy. He's claiming an eternal union that he has with his father in his thought, uh, in, in his and his father's judgment, uh, in his and his father's purpose, their intentions, their actions. But here we come to a, a further expansion of his testimony, I'm sorry, of, of, his, of, his, um, uh, of his claims to equality with the Father. And we come to a point in Jesus' monologue in which he tells the religious elite, just look around for just a little bit. Okay, just take inventory, just look around for a little bit. Notice that there are others who also make this claim to the son's equality with the father. He doesn't, in other words, Jesus just doesn't make these claims to equality with the father all on his own, all by himself. Others testify to his claims with equality to the father as well. In other words, he's got witnesses in this court, and he's going to call them. He's got people that, uh, that, that, that are on his side. He's going to call them as, as witnesses who will testify to his claims that he lays out. And for that reason, when they look at the preponderance of the testimony, it should stir them up to reconsider their desire to persecute them, their hatred of him. It's uh, almost like uh, that episode. I, I was a big um, um, Parks and Rec fan uh, way back a number of uh, years ago. I think they took it off Netflix. But it's like that Parks and Rec episode where Ron Swanson does something incredibly dumb. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, seen this, but I think he... Uh, uh, he gets into a relationship with one of the Tammies again. I think it's Tammy too. I'm not 100% sure. But everybody tells him that it's a bad idea. Okay, Leslie tells him it's a bad idea. Uh, independent from, uh, from Leslie, uh, uh, Tom says it's a bad idea. Donna says it's a bad idea. Everybody says that it's a bad idea. And even Ron Swanson himself recorded himself on video saying that this is a bad move so that just in case he ever wants to do this really bad thing, he can watch a video of himself t- telling his future self that this is a bad idea and if you know that episode of um, Parks and Rec, you know that the uh, people here, the religious elite, uh, they respond very similarly to Ron Swanson uh, does. And so we'll be looking at this, uh, this passage uh, with this in, in mind, our theme uh, going forward, in terms of witnesses, testifiers, and stuff like this. We are obliged to believe in Jesus' testimony of himself because it's synonymous with others' testimony of him as well. And we'll be looking at these three ideas, the earthly testimony, the heavenly testimony, and the written testimony. As we take a look at the earthly testimony, I'll have you look back at uh, verse 31. We have an introduction of uh, this testimony here in terms of the decorum of the law of God. Verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, Jesus isn't here speaking in absolute terms. Uh, that, that is to say, Jesus isn't referring to a blanket statement that uh, can apply anywhere and at any time. Uh, I say this because there's some people who have said that this is a contradiction here. And if you look back in verse um, 11 of chapter 3 and forward in chapter 8, verse 14, where he bears witness about himself. But if you look at those passages, uh, you'll notice that he's not being put on trial, as it were, in those settings. But here... Uh, in chapter 5, he is being put on trial of sorts. Uh, he, he is speaking in terms of the court of law because, after all, after all, they are charging him with blasphemy and they're now considering capital punishment. So there is a court sort of setting here that makes it distinct 
from chapter 3 and chapter 8. And so one of the ways in which to conduct a trial in this day is, well, according to the law of God. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it says this. It says that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with the offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. That's what it says. And so what's Jesus doing? Well, he's assenting to the law of God. He gives assent to the law of God. He's saying that to, to, to his accusers uh, that he is who he says he is, right? And not only that, but he knows that truth is discovered according to the law, specifically this truth that is conducted at this trial right here. It has to be according to the decorum and the jurisprudence of the law of God. So he'll follow those guidelines and he'll tell the other people, the religious elite, to follow those guidelines likewise. The Bible says that there needs to be two or more witnesses, two or three witnesses, and he's got three. He's got three here. And so according to the law of God... He brings in those who testify about him. Firstly, verse 32, he briefly mentions his father as a witness. He says that there is another, verse 32, who bears witness about me. I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, this acts like sort of like a title in a newspaper, so there's more to come in just a little bit. But secondly, he calls his earthly witness. He calls his earthly witness in verse 33. You sent to John... And he has borne witness to the truth. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, what, what does that mean? When, when did they send to John? What, what does that mean that, he, that you sent to John? When did they send uh, to John? Well, remember back in chapter 1, the delegation that was sent from the religious elite to John the Baptist, John chapter 1. They asked him in verse 20 who he was, and he confessed. And by the way, uh, the, the passage doesn't just say that he confessed that he wasn't the Christ. It gives emphasis to it. It says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. In other words, you hyper underscore that, you highlight it in, in, in yellow, red, all the colors of the rainbow. It points right there to his confession right there. He confessed, he, but he, didn't, he did not deny, but he confessed that he was not the Christ. I say that because the word confessed there is, it carries a, a similar weight uh, to our understanding of, uh, of the title, what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a very similar uh, reason why the Westminster Confession of Faith is called the Confession, uh, very similar uh, language that's uh, being used there. It's an articulated statement of faith that John the Baptist is not the Messiah. If, if you take a look at that, uh, that passage, chapter 1, verse 27, uh, then he answers to the majesty of Jesus. Uh, he says, this is a man uh, who's been promised a long time ago, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's so majestic, I, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. That's how majestic he is. Verses 32 and 33, he testifies then to his vision of the Holy Spirit who descends upon Jesus, but then who remains upon Jesus. He testifies to this and how this event corroborates exactly with everything that he's been told that would happen. And then fast forward in chapter 3, verses 32 and 33, he says that Jesus will bring testimony, and whoever believes and receives that testimony has confirmed the truthfulness of God. So John the Baptist is the earthly 
human witness to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, I'm skipping over verse 34 just for a minute, but further he uh, talks about John the Baptist in terms of his impact in the next verse, verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, John the Baptist, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. In other words, John the Baptist was a lamp. He was not the light of the lamp. The light, the true light, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, uh, the true light that was coming into the world is giving light to every, everybody, and that what was, is what was being testified to by John the Baptist. And they were willing to rejoice in his light for a little while. There's a lot that that, uh, that means. We can talk about it um, afterwards. But they were willing to rejoice in this for a, a little while at least. Uh, but even this earthly witness about Jesus has a disclaimer about it in verse 34. Uh, back to verse 34. Jesus says, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. In other words, when all is said and done at the end of the day, he doesn't need an earthly witness. He needs no earthly witness. His claim uh, to equality with the Father, his claims about himself, isn't something that he just came up with one day and, and, and just so happens to pay off a follower to say the same thing. All of heaven claims this first. It claims this from all eternity, that the Son is himself equal to the Father. He need, in other words, if his claims to equality with the Father are true, he needs no earthly witness. He needs no earthly witness because God needs no one to corroborate his claims to make sure that they are true. God needs no one to do this. And as great of a testifier as John the Baptist was, as powerful as he was to testify, we can say that John the Baptist was... Uh, the earthly, the most earthly, and therefore the weakest source of testimony in this list of witnesses that Jesus brings. Remember uh, what's said about John, John chapter 3, verse 31. He was from the earth, and he speaks as one who is from the earth. So Jesus doesn't need an earthly witness, although he has that. And the last part of verse 34 really reveals Jesus' heart, which challenges us uh, to some thinking in terms of our evangelism. He says, I say these things so that you may be saved. Uh, very often when we think about uh, uh, evangelism, uh, when we think about uh, apologetics, that is the defense of the faith, uh, we think that it's our task just to prove the skeptic wrong, right? Or, or just to prove that, uh, say, traditional marriage is the right form of, of, of marriage for us. Or maybe it's, it's our job to prove, uh, to merely prove that evolution isn't true or something like, uh, like that. Uh, what we do is we shoot down the plane of the unbeliever, but we give them nowhere to land, right? But I think this exposes Jesus' heart so that when we, th when we think about apologetics, and by the way, this is set up, uh, exactly in the format of when a person does apologetics and evangelism with, uh, with someone else. I mean, what do you have in front of Jesus? You have a bunch of religious elite who are charging him for uh, the sin of blasphemy. They're ready to stone him and stuff like that. And this entire passage asks us uh, the, the question, especially our passage right here, verses 31 through 40, who's really on trial here? 
You know, that's what, uh, what we should think of at the end of reading this. Who is the one who is really on trial here? This is instructive for us as we uh, think about things like evangel- how, to, how to share the gospel with, uh, with someone else. Uh, Jesus is at the same time making and corroborating claims about himself, and then he reveals his heart. He's, in other words, he's shooting down that plane, and then he says, I say this so that you may be saved. He wants to give that place, that plane, a place to land. So when Jesus says that he bears testimony of himself, why does he do this? It's so that they may be saved. Is this your goal as well? Is this what you want to do? I mean, I don't think I have to tell you uh, to just look at the headlines of any newspaper that's out there and know that there's a lot of things that, that we need to defend the faith against nowadays. Is it your goal to merely defend to merely prove the skeptic wrong? Or is it your goal to do something else? This is a very, very important distinction here. He's not, saying, he's not even saying that, the, that, that he's saying these things so that he can prove his own innocence. It's not why he's, he's doing this. So that when we share the gospel or, or any part of the Christian life to the unbeliever, it should be, why? So that they be saved. The message is held out by Jesus, and this is the message that's held up by John the Baptist, uh, the one who bears the earthly testimony. Now let's move on to our second idea for this evening, the heavenly testimony, the heavenly testimony. We read the first part of this in verse 36 of the heavenly testimony. Uh, Jesus says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, which means that no matter how great John's ability to testify to the things of Christ It pales in comparison with whatever's coming next, which is the heavenly testimony. And we know that the heavenly testimony is always going to be greater than even the greatest of human abilities to bear witness about anything, even the things of God. We know this for at least a couple of different reasons. Why is it that Jesus' testimony is greater than that of John? Well, not only is his testimony, heaven's testimony, greater than that of John, it's greater than everything else. Why do we know this to be the case? We know that it's always going to be, heaven's testimony is always going to be greater for two reasons at least. Firstly, God is the originator of all, of all human knowledge. He is the source, he is the, the originator of all human knowledge. Everything that we know is as a result of revelation. God reveals the things that, uh, that we know. So, of course, the testimony that Jesus has is greater than that of John. And secondly... Everything that heaven knows and and, and everything that heaven declares and testifies to is known and testified to sinlessly. It's known and it's testified to sinlessly, which means that when Jesus speaks about anything, uh, he doesn't speak from a mind uh, that has the effects of the fall upon it. There's no sinful effects upon his mind. So the heavenly testimony is both complete and it's flawless at the same time. It's, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's entirely reliable. It's entirely reliable. So yes, of course, his testimony is greater than that of John. And he bears this out in terms of what he means in the rest of the verse. Look at verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Uh, what this means here is that the Father has given to him particular tasks and particular works 
so that when these people, when the people around Jesus see these works, what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to be able to correlate the Father's works with his own. And this is the function, by the way, of Jesus' signs in the Gospel of John. Uh, We've been looking at the signs of the Gospel of John. We've only seen three of them uh, thus far in the Gospel of John. What what John calls a miracle, or what what we normally call miracles, John calls as signs. We've been seeing how these signs match up rather clearly with the things that we've seen before in the Bible. Uh, That uh, turning water into wine looks like sort of the response of that time that the water of the Nile turned into blood. Uh, That when Jesus heals the official's son in the end of chapter 4, it sort of looks like the response to the plagues of flies, gnats, and boils that God has, has given to Egypt and the diseases that those have brought. And the healing of the man uh, at the pool of Bethesda, uh, it says that he was paralyzed for for 38 years. It sort of looks like the response to the 38 years of Israel being in the wilderness, them being at at the threshold of the promised land. These signs testify about Jesus and saying that he's just doing what he sees his father doing. He, he's, just, he's just taking note and just doing likewise. This is what, uh, what he does. We're going to keep looking at these signs uh, later on as we come across them. And what do you think they're, that they're going to do when we take a look at them? The next one, <clears throat> by the way, is in, in the very next chapter. What do you think that these signs are going to continue to do? They'll keep testifying to Jesus. They'll keep telling us about him. They'll keep telling us to correlate uh, what the Father is doing, what he is doing. They're going to keep testifying about Jesus and his equality with the Father. They'll speak in quantifiable, verifiable ways that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, He is the Christ. And that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. That's the entire purpose of the Gospel of John. They bear witness about him and his being sent by the Father. We can say that these signs overcome the effects of a sinful and fallen world and that they bring the fragments of heaven upon earth. How do you know that Jesus enjoys equality with the Father? Well, the heavenly works speak of this. They're unavoidable. They're really increasingly undeniable manifestations of his equality with the Father. The works that the Father has given him to accomplish, these are the things that bear witness that the Father has sent him. This is the first of the heavenly testimonies. And in verses 37 and 38, we see the heavenly testimony about Jesus a little bit more clearly expanded out. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness... About me. This actually, in my uh, humble judgment, should say something like, and so the Father has borne witness about me. In the original language, it's joined to the verse before it. Um, in other words, the Father bears witness primarily through these works, these signs that Jesus is, is doing. And moving forward, Jesus makes a statement that really calls the religious Jews to the mat uh, by using their own religion against them. Take a look at this. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. I'd like to point out a couple of things when Jesus says this. It's a couple of things. Firstly, what's implied here? What's implied here? There's an implication as though they have uh, never seen God, 
right? Even though uh, they have, have, have never uh, heard the Father, and even, even though they don't have his word in them, what's the implication here? Jesus does. Jesus does. The implication here is that he has seen the Father. He has heard the Father. John 1, verse, verse 18, no one has ever seen God at any time. Uh, the only true God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John 1, verse 18. So yes, Jesus has seen the Father. He has heard the Father. And by the way, not only does Jesus have the word of God in him, he is the word of God. You remember that in John chapter 1. He is the very word of God. The implication, firstly here, is that they haven't, but Jesus has. Secondly, there's a connection between the religious elite who Jesus is speaking to when he says uh, that you have never heard his voice, you have never seen his form, and you don't have his word in you. There's a connection to the religious elite right here and the people of Israel at Sinai that's being drawn here. Jesus says, his voice you have never heard. Exodus 20, verse 19, uh, the people, trembling, stand afar off. They, they, they tell Moses, you speak to us, then we will listen. Don't let God speak to us, lest we die. They don't, want, they don't want to hear him out of self-preservation. So Jesus says to the religious elite, his voice you have never heard. Secondly, his form you have never seen takes us back to Sinai, right? Uh, takes us back to Sinai, where even Moses saw no form of God, Deuteronomy 4, verse 12 and his word not being in them is reminiscent of a couple of chapters later in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's reminiscent of the command that the word of God is supposed to be in their hearts. They're to talk about it to their children. They're to talk about it when they rise up, when they lay down, when they walk upon the way, when they sit all, all times, the word is to be in their hearts. The religious elite find themselves in a very similar position relative to Israel in the wilderness. They're unable to attain God's promises. Even though the fulfillment of God's promises is right there among them. In their very midst. And so the heavenly testimony is this. So with this he gives them the verdict at the end of verse 38. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. They disregard the earthly testimony. Uh, they spurn the heavenly testimony. And in so doing, ironically, they find themselves to be in a position very similar to the original recipients of the law of God. And lastly, we'll look at the written testimony. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Now, I believe in sola scriptura, we, talk, we can talk about this later. Let's take a look at how this is used in the passage. Notice the raw and rugged Christless intellectualism that's going on here. There's a sense in which the rabbis in that day thought that life was gained by the study of Torah. Uh, they assumed that the law is life, and therefore the more you studied it, the more life that you would have for the world to come. The longer and the more you studied it, if you were studying it well, 
you would be given life. But notice that the study of the scriptures to them is an end in and of itself. Uh, That through doing this, and this alone, they would gain life. That scripture, that, uh, that the word of God is an end in itself. This is one of the reasons why we call scripture a means of grace. I remember in the Westminster Confession, I believe we read that this morning, the means of grace, what, are the word of God, sacraments, and prayer. These are means of grace, not an end unto themselves. In other words, you don't just open up a Bible and get blasted by grace and fall over and stuff like that, and you're good till the next time you, uh, you do that. The word of God is an end in and of itself. The Holy Spirit takes his word to your hearts. Why? So that Christ would be formed in you. They are a means of grace. Ours is not, in other words, an intellectual confession where you're saved by your study. Ours is an evangelical confession where you're saved by God's grace. Jesus is here. He is chiding the religious Jews. He's yelling at them for their misguided study of scriptures, which only led them to deceiving themselves into self-righteousness. They're congratulating themselves on, in terms of the depth of their study instead of giving God praise for revealing the Savior, which is exactly what, uh, what I and Pastor Ben do Sunday after Sunday. We reveal to you the Savior. We say, run to him, uh, cling to him, uh, hold out the empty hands of faith to him. Look at the Savior. Yes, the scriptures are to be studied, but they're never to be an end in and of itself like the Jews thought they were. Let it be a means of grace. This is how Jesus understood it. He said it is they, that is the scriptures, particularly the Old Old Testament in Jesus' day, it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now look at what Jesus is doing here. He's saying a couple of things. Firstly, Jesus brings in the testimony of Scripture. Why? To fill out the, the, the complete number of the witnesses that are required to corroborate exactly who he is. Now, this completes the trifecta of sorts on, on two accounts. Firstly, that he calls in these three witnesses. Remember back in the uh, beginning of the sermon about three hours ago um, that, uh, that on the basis of two or three witnesses, a matter can be charged, a matter can be uh, honored in terms of the court of law. Now, what does Jesus do? He brings in his three witnesses. He brings in John the Baptist, the Father, and the Scriptures to corroborate his person. But look also what he does. He calls in the scriptures to bear witness to his person, which is another way of saying that he calls in the Holy Spirit to bear testimony about himself as well. The scriptures are there, after all, by the origination and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In terms of the Christian life, to be led by the Spirit is to be led by the Word. To be led by the Spirit is to be led by the Word. The Spirit of God speaks through the Word of God. And so for Jesus, to bring in the testimony of the Scriptures is to bring into the testimony of the Spirit of God. This completes the Trinitarian formula of the heavenly witnesses. Jesus witnesses of himself. You could look at John 3, verse 11, and in this very passage, John 5, verse 31, Jesus testifies of himself. Uh, Verse 32, the Father testifies of him. And now, verses 39 and 40, the Holy Spirit also testifies of him. This passage says that the Spirit-inspired scriptures testify about Jesus as he is on trial for being exactly who he is. He's equal with the Father. 
The scriptures are being brought in as a faithful witness to his person. And we can ask, okay, how is it that the scriptures testify to who Jesus is? How is it that the scriptures speak of him? There's, there's plenty of ways that we can uh, think about this. There's plenty of ways in which the scriptures speak about Jesus, right? Uh, we can think of this through types and through, through shadows, uh, through the paschal lamb, uh, ordinances, sacrifices, etc. You can also look at particular passages. Genesis 3, verse 15 God promises to crush the head of the serpent, by the way, through the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man, but the seed of the woman, indicating the virgin birth. Uh, We can think of uh, Isaiah chapter 9, unto us, son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Isaiah 53, if you walk away from Isaiah 53 and not see Jesus, um, you need a lot of help reading, okay? That's all I'm going to say for now. You can think of uh, the uh, passage that pastor preached on not too long ago, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, the new covenant that God gives with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You can see very clearly how the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the end of the Old Testament, if you turn over to the book of Malachi, what is the end word of the book of Malachi? The end word in the Old Testament is destruction. Uh, far be it from God whose redemptive plan only leads to destruction at the end of the, uh, of, of the Old Testament. You need Jesus. It's a plan of redemption, not a plan of destruction. The Old Testament speaks about Jesus. But the point of this is, is this. It speaks about Jesus and it points to him. It's he that gives you life. Jesus gives you life. It's not your ability to interpret. It's not your ability to study it or for that matter for, to do any of the acts of evangelical obedience. Either Jesus gives you life or you do not have life. Jesus must give you life or you have no life. No, no, no matter how good you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much you've studied, if the word hits your eyes but doesn't indwell your heart, you do not have eternal life and you should have no assurance that you do. It's Jesus who gives you life. So we've seen tonight that we're obliged to believe in Jesus' testimony of himself because it's synonymous with others' testimony of him as well. And I'll close with a couple of points of application for us tonight. Firstly, brothers and sisters, believe the one whom the Father has sent. Believe the one whom the Father has sent. He's given to you. He's given to you. Uh, God is for you. He's for you. He's witnessed to, by the testimony of men, by the testimony of heaven, uh, by the testimony of the written word given from heaven so that it's on paper so it'll always be with us. Jesus is given to you. He's given to you. Brothers and sisters, You believe in him, and so you have life. So yes, be confident in the testimony that's given about him. Let that confidence be to you a heaven-sent comfort. The testimony of God alone is greater than all the shouts of those who hate him. The devil may tempt us, our hearts might even deceive us, but we find comfort and solace in which on 1 John 5, verse will say that God is greater than our heart. God is greater than our heart. Believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Secondly, search the scriptures, see Jesus, come to him, and enjoy life. One of the most crippling problems in the church today is that Christians don't know their Bibles. Christians don't know their Bibles. 
Uh, And even if they do, even if we do know our Bibles, we don't know how to use them. Jesus says that the scriptures bear witness about him. One of the problems in the church nowadays is the question, how will we know how to see Jesus if we're not in our Bibles? How? How can we possibly effectively tell anybody about the good news of the Lord Jesus, the gospel, if we are not regular in our Bibles? How will we ever do this? There's no trade that you can succeed at without studying it. There, there, there's none that's, uh, that's out there learning about it. It's no different than the Christian life. If you are not regularly in your Bibles, then you aren't regularly hearing the Spirit's testimony about Jesus. You're neglecting this means of grace. If you are, if you are regular in your, in, in, in your Bibles, praise God, then the word is to you the voice of the shepherd. The word is to you the voice of the shepherd, and you draw near to the Lord Jesus through it. You come to the well thirsty, you leave satisfied because you've gotten Jesus through the word. You've come to Christ. Get in your Bibles, and the more you get in them, the more you'll know how to use them, and the more you'll see Jesus. And the more you'll come to him, find life in him, the easier it will be to testify about him to others. Search the scriptures, see Jesus, come to him, have life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we